And our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. We're going to start in 12 for context and read verses 12 through 17. As we do this, let's be reminded that this is the word of the Lord, the word of the living God, and his word is living and active and powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. This word knows how to penetrate to your innermost person and discover you. And we want that as Christians, don't we? We want to be changed by this word. So let's ask the Lord for his help this morning to do that. Romans 8 verse 12, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time to sit under your word. And we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds. Father, that you would teach us and transform us from within. That your word would take deep root in our hearts. Father, Discover any sin within us that perhaps we haven't confessed and help us, Lord, to um, confess and repent. Help us to live in this new life you've called us to. We know that you are and that you will. And so we praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, we've been learning about many privileges that belong to the children of God by virtue of the fact that He has given us a saving faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which we have exercised toward Him and continue to exercise toward Him. We are justified, brothers and sisters. We are declared right with God. We have standing with Him now because of this great faith that He has given. A faith that is directed to a singular and that is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down His life for sinners, for enemies of God, that we might live with Him and enjoy Him forever. This work of the Spirit is a work that He is showcasing for us in Romans chapter 8 so that we have assurance. That really is the underlining point of this whole chapter This is a chapter of assurance for the people of God. God is not confused about your salvation. He knows all those who belong to Him. And that's why He says, let all those who name the name of Christ depart from sin, from iniquity. Why? Because that is the evidence that we need to understand that we are the children of God indeed. So this is a chapter of assurance, and there are many assurances that are given to the children of God. Last week we were looking at the beginning of verse 15 with regard to a spirit that we have received. Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, 
or a spirit of slavery to fear again one more time. And what we learned is that it is the Holy Spirit of God who first brings His children down in humility before He exalts them to see the glory of God. And in that humiliation, when He brings us low, He gives us a glimpse of our own deadness in sin and trespasses. He shows us that all the flower of our field, the glory of man that we would see in ourselves is but withered grass and a dying flower in order to humble us and to make room for the glory of God to be seen by us. That He would show us His great salvation, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ who gave Himself for sinners like us. So we saw that the Spirit first leads us into this slavery to fear, a fear of death, a fear of judgment, a fear of God as the great judge. But He doesn't leave us there. He doesn't give us this Spirit again. He brings us to that point intentionally to break us, to wound us, in order that He might heal us and bind us up He says, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So we talked about this spirit of adoption. What is this spirit of adoption? And we we said that the spirit of adoption is the Holy Spirit of God who is working out a spirit, a lowercase s spirit of adoption in the hearts of all his children to know that we are his sons indeed. He works out in us an understanding that God has rescued us purely by His sovereign grace. Not because we deserved it or we earned it. Quite to the contrary. We were His enemies who deserved only wrath and hell. And not because He needed anything in Himself as a benefactor, as an adoptive father, as would have been the case in the culture in which Paul was writing. No, God chooses and sets His love on His people purely because He is gracious. He is a Savior. And He has an everlasting love that only He can give to those who don't deserve anything. These are, this is the understanding of the spirit of adoption that we are coming to through the Spirit of God working in our hearts We have been given status, and that status is as sons. Sons who have all the rights and privileges that pertain to natural-born children, but not just of any father, of the Father of all spirits, the Lord God Almighty. Last week, we left off with that last point of what is the spirit of adoption, The third question that we didn't get to that I'd like to address with you today is, how do we know if we have the spirit of adoption? So that we might have assurance that we are His and that He is ours. We're going to look at that today in the rest of verse 15 and the beginning of verse 16. And I'd like to give really four points to guide us today as we go through this. The first is, We want to understand something of what this cry is. There is a cry of Abba, Father. What is that cry? That's the first thing. 
Secondly, we want to understand where does this cry come from? What's the origin of this cry? Thirdly, how do I identify true versus counterfeit cries? Are there cries that are genuine and cries that are not? We want to understand how to identify between those two. And then lastly, what is the privilege of the cry? What is the privilege of this cry? Because it is indeed a great privilege, as I hope to show you. So firstly, let's look together at what the cry is. What the cry is. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the word that Paul uses in the Greek for crying out here is the Greek word krazo, and it means to cry out, and it refers really to the cry or the scream of a raven, of a shriek. It refers to a loud, passionate expression. The word krazo that's translated from the Hebrew word or that's uh, in the Septuagint as a translation for the Hebrew word for to cry is the Hebrew word kara. What's, the reason I'm saying these words is because they are onomatopoetic in nature. An onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it is, what it describes. So you can hear that, can't you, with krazo and kara. It sounds like to cry, much like the English words buzz or boom or splash describe what they are. And we see several uses of this cry in the Scripture. These are sometimes desperate cries for mercy, as in the case We see in Matthew chapter 9, there's an account of two blind men who were following the Lord Jesus Christ, and the account says that that they were crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. They knew they were blind, and they were desperate for healing. They cried out for mercy. Or in Matthew chapter 15, the woman of Canaan, the Syrophoenician woman, she comes crying out to the Lord for mercy, not for herself, but for her daughter who's demon-possessed. Similarly, in Mark chapter 9, there's a man with a demon-possessed son who is desperate for his son's healing. And Jesus says to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately that man, the father, cries out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This is the cry of desperation for mercy. This cry is also described as a cry of fear. In Matthew 14, we have the cry of the disciples when they see Jesus coming to them, walking on the water in the late hours, the late watch of the night, thinking that he is a ghost. Peter also, when he by faith steps out of the boat and begins to walk to Jesus on the water, when he beholds the storm, the wind and the waves that are contrary to him, he begins to fear. And as he begins to fear and sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. These are all the shrieks, the croaks, the cries of the people of God that we see in the Scriptures. Even the demons cry out to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is able to torment and destroy the demons, and they know it. And so they cry out to Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, leave us alone. Are you here to torment us? 
What have we do to do with you? These cries are also cries of passion. A passion. John the Baptist, for example, when he was in the wilderness of Judea and crying out to repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand, he was crying out and bearing testimony to Jesus Christ with a loud exclamation. With the crowds, when they were considering the case of Pilate and looking at the Lord Jesus Christ as to whether to crucify Him or set Him free. They cried out, crucify Him! Crucify Him! And Jesus Himself, when He was on the cross and He yielded up His spirit, immediately prior to that, He cried with a loud voice and gave up His spirit, showing that He was fully in control and had not diminished in his strength because of his divinity. These cries can also be cries of joy. Of joy. The multitudes at the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus, they cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. They're joyful as they anticipate a political Messiah who would come and set them free from their bondage to Rome as oppressive power. So all of these cries are cries and they fit different categories. They may be cries for mercy. They may be cries of fear or cries that come from a great passion or, or cries of joy. And what is the cry that we're dealing with in Romans 8.15? It's simply these two words, Abba, Father. Well, what does Abba mean? Well, Abba is an Aramaic word for daddy. Aramaic or Syriac, was sort of a hybrid language that developed after Israel, Judah, came back from their captivity in Babylon. It was a hybrid between Hebrew and Phoenician. It was a new language that really displaced Hebrew and became the common language of the people. And Hebrew became relegated language, the language of the upper class, the language that was used in religious settings or in legal or governmental settings. So this is a common word that every child would have understood. Christ and His disciples spoke Aramaic. And this word is the word daddy. It's a common Jewish word, a cry to a, from a son to a father. It's an expression really of tenderness. It's an expression of familiarity. It's an expression of delight in the father of love for the Father, and of a total trust in the Father. And this is directed uniquely at the Father. This is not a word that's used in other relationships. This not only showed who the Father was when the Son would cry this Abba word, but it also showed that He, in fact, was a true Son. There's a link between Son and Father through this word. But Paul adds another word after Abba. He says, Abba, Father. And why is that? Well, Paul was writing, as you remember, to the Romans. That's a group that's comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And so he adds Father for clarity for the non-Aramaic speakers. Abba, that is to say, Father. Father. There's another deep significance here of both Abba and Father, and that is this, that all the sons of God cry to their God as Father. Whether you are Jewish or whether you are a Gentile, 
all speak this language of daddy. In other words, all God's children cry out to him. This is an evidence that you have the spirit of adoption in your heart. Now, most Bible translations include an exclamation point after Abba, Father. Um, The King James and the New King James, for some reason, do not. And I don't think they get that right in this particular translation. these, These children are crying out, Daddy, that's an exclamatory statement. And I also want you to notice, this is not a one-time cry of the child. The tense that Paul is using here for to cry out is the present active. In other words, this is a pattern of continuous crying out from the child to the father again and again and again. This is a simple question. I'll direct this to the children in the room. Children, do you remember when you were very small and you would cry out, Daddy? Is that something you would say just one time? Or would you repeat yourself until you get your daddy's attention? See, daddy doesn't always respond the first time. Children understand this well. This is a persistent, repetitive cry of urgency. The child needs the father. So, this crying is really described, if we put this together, this is a strong cry of little children in a posture of faith and love toward God as a tender father, voiced with earnestness, voiced with urgency, passion, and expressed persistently, repeatedly, not just one time. Now, there's something else in Scripture that is described as something that we are to do continuously. Do you know what that is? Prayer. Listen to some of these examples. Psalm 55, 16 and 17. This is King David. As for me, I will call upon the Lord, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. What time of day is David calling out to the Lord in prayer? All day long. Evening and morning and at noon. In other words, all day. Listen to Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Jesus began speaking a parable to the disciples. He said this, that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. And that was the parable of the persistent widow who is seeking justice from her adversary. And she goes to an unjust judge, a judge, the Scripture says, who the Scripture says does not fear man. And the judge says, though I don't fear God or regard man, yet because this woman comes to me unceasingly, uh, persistently, she's wearying me. (laughs) I'm going to give her justice just so she goes away, is the paraphrase. And the Lord says, learn this parable. If a widow can get justice from an unjust judge through her persistent cries to him, How much more shall not God avenge His own elect who cry out to Him day and night? Though He bears long with them. If if a widow who is an unprotected person can get justice from somebody who is unjust, how much more can you who are sons, who are privileged, get justice from your Father, who is truly just and a good Father. 
He only gives good gifts to his children. It's a rhetorical question. But men ought always to pray. We are to pray with that kind of persistence. Luke 21 In verse 36, this is a discussion of the signs of the times and the end of the age when the disciples were asking the Lord, when are these things going to take place? When is the temple going to be destroyed? What is going to be the sign of your coming when you come again the second time? And the Lord says, watch therefore and pray always that you may have strength to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Watch and pray always. That's a persistence that we are enjoined to do, that we are commanded to do. In Ephesians chapter 6, in the description of all of the um, armor of God, in verse 17 it says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer. That's a pretty full statement. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul says, continue earnestly in prayer or steadfastly in prayer or devote yourselves to prayer with thanksgiving. Do you hear the commands in every one of these descriptions in the Scripture? I mean, Paul says it very succinctly in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. Don't ever stop praying. Now, if you thought about that, um, you may have asked yourself this question, how is that possible? How does anyone ever pray without ceasing and obey that command? I mean, are we praying all the time? This is a command, something we are to do continuously. And I would venture to say that this is a daunting thing for people to hear. I think... The reason why it's daunting is because many Christians misunderstand prayer as being a long, protracted, uh, theologically rich, eloquent speech to the Lord that really only certain Christians can do well. The so-called prayer warriors, they're the ones who know how to pray. And yes, prayer can be that, but it doesn't have to be that. You see, Paul is teaching us that to pray without ceasing is simply to be a child who cries out, Daddy, genuinely and repeatedly. Think about this. Do you have to teach a baby to cry? I mean, children cry instinctively because they have needs, right? Children cry because they are hungry or thirsty or tired or afraid or sick or maybe on the positive side because they experience something delightful and they shriek for joy. See, Paul is teaching that all true children of God have a new instinct implanted in their hearts. We have a new instinct that we have received from the Holy Spirit. This is not something that we've conjured up on our own. This is not something that's natural to the flesh. Romans 8.15 says, You have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. This is a gift. This is a new instinct. And it's called prayer. It's called prayer. So what is this cry? It's a cry. It's, It's a prayer. 
It is, it is prayer. And the child may not even be able to articulate what he's trying to say. I mean, he says, Daddy. And sometimes he just repeats that word over and over again. Sometimes the child can't even say daddy. He's pre-words, right? And all he does is what? He cries. It's all he knows how to do to express himself. Matthew Henry said, children that cannot speak vent their desires by crying. I think that's exactly it. And Paul is going to explain this more as we go. We get to Romans 8, verse 26. He says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been unable to pray? Um, You just don't have the words but your heart is directed to the Lord and you're crying out to Him. Thank God His Spirit is making intercession for us because there are times when we don't even know what to say. We're very much like these little children who just cry. So, brothers and sisters, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to understand that prayer does not need to be a drawn-out, eloquent thing. It is, to the contrary, or at its foundation, is a better way of saying it, a privilege that all true children of God have. It always has this quality. It's sincere. It's sincere. Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22 urges him, he says, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. All children of God call on the Lord from a pure heart. Um, You may have seen on your bulletin this morning, there's a quote that I put from John Bunyan, and it just spoke to my heart with regard to this passage. In prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. See, that's true prayer. It's a prayer that comes from a genuine heart, a new heart a heart that's been redeemed, a heart that has this instinct to cry out as compared with those who speak many words but have no heart for the Lord, who think they're praying but actually are not. This is a supernatural instinct, brothers and sisters. Only the children of God possess this. So as we think about this this morning, if you see, if you can relate to this, that you do do this, this is a wonderful evidence that you have the Spirit of God and that you belong to Him. And I want you to notice also, this is an instinct that all the children of God possess. Paul changes the personal pronoun in verse 15 of Romans 8 from saying, for you did not receive to, but but you received the Spirit of adoption by whom we cry out. So he goes from talking about you to we. In other words, he includes himself in this cry. This is a cry that's independent of age. You can be a young Christian, you can be a mature Christian, all cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. You might be 80 years old, but if you are a true son, you will cry, Abba, in your heart. You see, all of us are children of God all our lives. Yes, there is a maturity that happens in the Christian faith, and John describes categories of 
children and young men and fathers as we mature in the faith. But there's also this fundamental instinct that never changes. It's a hunger that a child has for milk. It will not be satisfied with anything but milk. It always cries out because of true need. That never changes for the Christian, no matter how mature you are. In fact, you will find that you are crying out more and more as you mature. You see, this emphasis on crying out like little children is so important because doesn't the Lord teach us that in order to enter the kingdom of God, we all have to become like little children? We have to become like little children. Um, Listen to how this is put in Matthew chapter 18. Just the first few verses here. Matthew 18, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. We must become like little children. What are children marked by? What what makes a child a child? Dependence. Total dependence on the Father. This cry to the Father is what makes us like children. Children are not encumbered by many things that adults are encumbered by, right? They don't have to worry about riches and their... uh, personality, their popularity, their their experience, the things they know or don't know, they just have a a filial love for the Father that they express continually. So it's really children that the Lord is concerned that we understand this concept. We are to become like little children, to be totally dependent, and little children cry. They pray. They pray constantly and more so over time. This, loved ones, is really the new pattern of life, is, is the point of a Christian. We cry out continuously. And Paul also tells us something about the origin of this cry. So firstly, we, we understand the, the nature of the cry is prayer in its essence. Secondly, we want to know where does this prayer come from? Where does this cry originate from? And in Romans 8.15, again, he says, But you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out. Or actually, the preposition is in whom we cry out, Abba, Father. In whom? In other words, in the spirit of adoption. In the Holy Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul gives some clarity to this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, where there's a parallel passage. He says this, And because you are sons... God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself is crying out, Abba, Father. Where is this taking place? In the heart. In the heart. This, in other words, might not even be a vocalized cry. This just might be a cry that you are expressing from your own heart. Inaudible to the ears of men, but very loud to the ears of God. And the dynamic of what's happening, I want you to understand, is this. It's the Spirit of God Himself who is doing the crying in you. 
The reason you cry out is because Christ Himself is crying out in you, in your heart. Actually, it was the Lord Jesus who modeled this for us in the Garden of Gethsemane when He was anticipating going to the cross. And His soul was exceedingly sorrowful and He was distressed even to the point of death. And He tells His disciples to stay and watch for a time as He goes off just a short distance to pray. Why a short distance? Because He wants His disciples to hear Him pray. He's modeling importunate, desperate prayer to the disciples. And Mark 14, 35 says, He went a little farther, fell on the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. And He said, this is Jesus speaking, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Take this cup away from Me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what You will. Brothers and sisters, we cry the same cry as the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have that instinct to cry out to the Lord, Abba, Father, you're showing that you are in Christ, that you belong to Him, that you are copying the same instinct that the Lord Jesus had in the garden with His Father. You see, this would be totally impossible if our natures weren't changed. The world can try to mimic Christ, but this is where it breaks down for them. They can say things with words, but they can never, ever cry out, Daddy, in their hearts because they're not true sons. They're not true sons. They're not led by the Spirit. So crying out is a wonderful evidence you are being led by the Spirit and that you are a legitimate son or a son and daughter. So that's the origin. The origin is it takes place in the heart, and it's Christ himself who is doing this in you. Thirdly, I want to identify true versus counterfeit cries. What does a true cry look like? And what do the counterfeit cries look like? Turn with me to Psalm chapter 50. Psalm 50. And the Lord contrasts the righteous with the wicked in this psalm. I want to pick up in verse 14. And let's take a look at this together. Verse 14, Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. That is, the things that you promise to the Lord, especially when you are in dire straits, when you're in trouble. And you vow, Lord, please help me. I will give you the praise and the thanks. Deliver me. Pay your vows to the Lord, to the Most High. Verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You should circle and underline that verse if it's not already done in your, in your uh, Bible. The righteous call upon the Lord in the day of trouble. When's the day of trouble? Brothers and sisters, as long as you live in this body of yours, the body of the flesh which is tainted with sin, every day is the day of trouble in the flesh. You are at war with yourself daily to die to yourself, though your flesh wants to continue to live and dominate you. This is the day of trouble. In the day of trouble, if you have that sensibility, if you are brought to an awareness that you are warring against your flesh, call out on the Lord. Call upon me, he says, in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. That's his promise. 
and you will glorify me. At the end of this psalm, he says, whoever offers praise glorifies me. The one who praises the Lord and thanks him in prayer gives him glory. As you wait on him to deliver you, knowing that he will deliver you. That's the picture of the righteous. They wait on the Lord. Their hearts are toward the Lord. They're saying, Abba, Father, help me. But to the wicked, God says, here's the contrast. What right have you to declare my statutes or to take my covenant in your mouth, seeing that you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? You see, the wicked have no problem taking God's words in their mouths. They do often. They quote Scripture. They may even have Scripture memorized. They might preach Scripture. But the Lord sees the heart. Inwardly, the wicked hate God's instruction. Why? Because they hate Him. Inwardly, they cast His words behind them. They don't set God's words always before them. A picture of meditation, a picture of valuing the Word of God. They don't do that. They may use the Word of God regularly. They may cite long prayers, recite long prayers. But this is what's happening in the heart of the wicked. This is the counterfeit prayer as compared with the true prayer. The true children cry from a pure heart. But the wicked are concerned with formality. The wicked are, are, wicked are concerned with the words themselves and not the spirit behind the words. That's why in Matthew chapter 7, the Lord gives us that really terrifying picture of the one who at the last day, at the day of judgment, will call out to the Lord, 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 many will say to me in that day, the Lord says, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not taken your words on our lips and spoken the good word of God? Emphatically, persistently, for long periods of time. Haven't we done this? And the Lord will say to them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. You professed to know me. You used my name and my words, but really I never knew you because you still have a love for sinning in your heart. Your heart's never been changed. That's the heart of the wicked. That's the false cry as compared to the true no, the righteous love the Lord's instruction. They keep His commandments before their eyes. They sin. We sin, don't we, brothers and sisters? But we repent. We love the Lord's instruction in our heart of hearts. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, there's a picture of how the Lord sees the wicked when He prays. And the language that's used of prayer is that of spreading the hands before the Lord. Isaiah says this, or the Lord says this through Isaiah. When you spread out your hands, in Isaiah 1.15, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. You see, when a person tries to stand before the Lord on his own, on his own merit, in his own righteousness, apart from trusting completely in the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ, because he sees he has no righteousness of his own. His hands are full of blood as he opens them to pray to the Lord. 
The Lord, in other words, sees that person as guilty of sin. And though that person may try to wash their sin away with much soap, what does that look like? Trying to do many good works to make up for the bad works that they've done? The stain remains. There's nothing that can remove that stain except other blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from every stain. In Isaiah chapter 59, we have a similar sentiment here. The Lord says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor His ear heavy that it cannot hear. In other words, there's no deficiency in God to save a sinner. Where's the problem? But your iniquities, your sins, have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. It's not that the Lord can't hear the prayers of some. It's He won't hear the prayers of the wicked. He refuses to. Again, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. God does not hear the prayers of the unbeliever, of the wicked, of the unrighteous. He won't hear their prayers, though they spread their hands and pray much. Because they have been separated from God by their sin. This is describing an unsaved person. A person who is not justified because they're still standing in their own righteousness, their own merit. You say, well, what about for the believer? Don't we still sin? Yes. Which of us, as a believer, has never spoken a lie or muttered a perversity? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have done this, right? But this is where Psalm 66, our call to worship this morning, I think is so helpful. Listen again to Psalm 66, verse 18, 19, and 20. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I regard iniquity, that that word regard means if I gaze at with attention because I delight in. If I look at the sin in my heart because I love it, the Lord will not hear my prayer. See, we all sin, but we don't love our sin, do we? We we don't look upon our sin in our hearts and gaze at it with delight. We gaze at it with contempt, with disgust. But certainly, I love this, God has heard me The psalmist says, God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. Why? What confidence does he have that the Lord hears his prayer? That he hasn't turned away from him? Because he doesn't regard iniquity in his heart. He hates his sin. See, the true cry is a cry from a pure heart. It's a heart that trusts in the Lord for all His righteousness, which loves God's instruction, which keeps His commandments and sets them before Him, not perfectly, but absolutely as the pattern of life. The false cry is purely lip service. It's concerned with many words. It's concerned with phrases to memorize, so I say the right thing rather than understanding the heart. It's a heart that secretly hates instruction because it hates God. I want to show you this from one other place in Matthew chapter 6, our Lord's own instruction about prayer. It's a good place to go. Matthew chapter 6. Look with me starting at verse 5. 
And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. So here the Lord is setting up the contrast for us. True prayer and hypocritical prayer. For they, the hypocrites, love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. Why? That they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. What's their reward? The praise of men. That is what they're looking for as they pray to God because they're not praying to God. But you, when you pray, go into your room and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. See, Christians, the righteous, what's our posture when we pray? Is it that we're trying to gain the the praise of men, the approval of men, to look good before men? Or are we perfectly content to go into our prayer closet, so to speak, our private room, shut the door, and pray to the Lord with these impulses of the heart, knowing that our Father who sees in secret will reward us openly? I think a lot has been said about the idea of a prayer closet as like a physical place where you go and you lock yourself away from a period of time to have fellowship with the Lord. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's great. You can't live your life 24-7 in a prayer closet like that, though, right? You can't. And yet the command of Scripture is pray without ceasing. So here it is, brothers and sisters. Take the prayer closet with you. Where's your prayer closet? It's in your heart. It's in your heart. Cry out to Him throughout the day, whatever the circumstance, whether it's a joyful occasion where you recognize His hand or you're in trouble and in fear. Call out to the Lord with this Abba, Father cry, knowing that He will answer your prayer. He will deliver you in His way and His time, and you will glorify Him. And then in verse 7 here, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. You don't have to ask God with many words in order for Him to know what you need. He already knows. Just call out to Him with genuineness, with sincerity, in truth. See the difference? The true prayer of faith and the false hypocrisy that is called prayer, but in fact is not prayer at all. Jesus never um, said that persistent prayer was not okay. When he says don't pray with many words, he's not talking about repeating yourself, repeating the same prayer again and again, maybe day after day, for years. That is something he encourages us to do. Be like that persistent widow until the Lord gives you justice, whatever that may be. Persist with him. But that comes from a heart of faith and love and not from formality of the mouth with a desire to be seen by men. So I want you to see that really all of these cries that are cried out, Abba, Father, whatever the circumstances are, whether it's for desperation, for help, whether it's you're afraid, whether it's you see the Lord and you delight in him, All these cries are oriented toward the Lord. That's the point. They're not oriented away from Him like they used to be. Your life, your whole life used to be oriented away from God and toward yourself. 
Now you're oriented toward him. You've been brought, as the Latin phrase captures it, corum Deo, before the face of God. Actually, the word in Greek for prayer, prosefkome, captures this idea too. The word to pray itself means to be toward God with your desire. Pros, toward, like face to face with, and efkome is your will, your desire, your wish. Your will and desire is now toward God in everything. That's the point. That's what the Christian is. It's a life of desire toward God, which is also called prayer. Now, I want to show you the privilege of this cry. This last point is the privilege of the cry. We've seen what the cry is. We've seen where the cry originates from. Uh, We've seen how to identify a true cry from a counterfeit cry. And lastly, I want us to see the great privilege of this cry. Brothers and sisters, do we realize what a tremendous privilege it is to call the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty, Father, Daddy, we use that as commonplace in the Christian life, don't we? We, we say Father all the time. But I, I want you to understand that this, was a, this would have been a very stark, strange thing to hear for a Jewish ear coming off of the Old Testament into the New. Um, in the Old Testament, there's only a handful of times that the Lord refers to Himself as a Father or the Father. Literally a handful of times. And the Jews, if you look at the history of the Jewish people, they actually repudiated this idea of calling God their Father. When Jesus came on the scene and He identified God as His Father, they hated Him for it and they wanted to kill Him because they said, you make yourself equal with God. And in fact, He was, which was right for Him to do. But this calling of the Father, this was something that was rare in the Old Testament, but really comes to light in in an explosion in the New Testament. And it's the Lord Jesus who himself leads the way for us to use this terminology. In the Lord's prayer himself, that model prayer is still in Matthew chapter 6. He says, pray in this manner, our Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, our Father. We are now able to call Him our Father. And the question is, by what right or authority can we call God our Father? Well, I think we've seen firstly that we have the Spirit of adoption who is the Holy Spirit who's Himself crying out. This is the Spirit of Christ crying out in us, Daddy, Father. But we also must never forget that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts. It was Jesus who at Pentecost poured out the Holy Spirit and pours it into every believer's heart because He first gave us access by His own blood. He pours out the Spirit and causes us to say Father because Jesus has done what has been required for us to call Him Father. He has paid for our sins to open up the access to God Himself. So that God no longer sees us as full of blood on our hands, but He welcomes us as children who are cleansed and dressed in His own robes. This is the gospel message, loved ones. God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. There was a great exchange that took place at the cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago. 
where God took all the sins of all His people of all time and laid them on the, the shoulders of His precious Son and then smote His Son, struck Him, gave Him uh, the eternity of hell that we all would have experienced and put it on Him in a period of time and crushed Him in order that we might graciously receive His righteousness so that now God views us, His children, as if we had perfectly obeyed just as Jesus did His whole life. That's an amazing truth. What a grace. This is the gospel message, and this is the only reason we can call Him Father. We, if, we, if we did not have this precious blood of Christ to cleanse us, brothers and sisters, we, we would be in craven fear as slaves. Slaves. We would not be sons. No, God sent His Son to lay down His life for us and then He raised Him from the dead for our justification to prove that we are in fact justified and that God has accepted the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. And then, having risen from the dead, we have a direct invitation to call God our Father. You remember when Jesus rose and He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He said to Mary, don't cling to Me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Jesus has opened the way for us to call God Father. It's through Jesus that we have standing and access with the Father. And it's through Jesus that we have this precious Holy Spirit who causes us to call out in our experience, in our subjective experience, Daddy. To know that we are in fact His. Very, very significant to call God Father. Let us never forget it's an instinct that comes to us at the cost of the precious blood of Christ. So it's not a small thing that we call Father Daddy. We always do so with reverence. We do so with respect. We do so with fear and trembling, never with arrogance, never with presumption. This cry is a great privilege because it came to us at a great cost. And secondly, it's a great privilege because this cry has a great value to us. A great value. This crying is not something that we just do, but it's something that works something for us. I want you to see this as we close this morning. Turn to Psalm chapter 34. This was our corporate reading this morning. Psalm 34 starting at the beginning. And as we read this together, I want you to listen for this idea of crying out to the Lord, of this impulse of the new heart that is reaching out to the Lord, because this psalm is full of it. <clears throat> I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. See, notice it's not just his mouth praising God. He praises God inwardly from his soul, from his heart. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. 
The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Brothers and sisters, this, this privilege that we have, this is a remedy. This is an antidote for fear, for ungodly fear, for the fear of man, for any kind of fear that is not of the Lord. This is the antidote for it. He says, this is David speaking, he says, you delivered me from all my fears and saved me from all my troubles. What is it that saves him from all his fears and all his troubles? Look at verse 4. I'm sorry, verse um, 4. Yeah, I sought the Lord and he heard me. He's crying out to God. He is calling out to the Lord. Verse 6, this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. So here we have the essential antidote to fear, to to a, a fainting of heart that we often encounter. Men should always pray and not lose heart. Prayer is the antidote to fear. You want not to fear in your life? You want to be delivered from all of your true troubles? which, by the way, are your enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, call out to the Lord without ceasing, and He will deliver you from all your fears and troubles, and you will glorify Him. Back to Psalm 50, verse 15. Now, what's so interesting to me about this psalm is the number of times that he uses the phrase, the fear of God, the fear of God. He says in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Look at verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So we are to fear the Lord. This is also a command. And this is a paradox in the Christian life. If you don't want to fear, if you want a remedy for the fear of man and the the ungodly fear that we encounter that's based in unbelief, the answer is the fear of the Lord. But the fear of the Lord is not what people often think as a craven, cowardly fear, a fear that God is my judge and executioner like I once saw him when the spirit of bondage to fear came upon me and I saw that. No, no, no. You don't have that spirit anymore. Now you have the spirit of adoption who cries out, Abba, Father. And here's what I'm trying to tell you. The crying out itself is the fear of the Lord. It's an orientation toward God and away from self. And that is the heart of the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom. You want true wisdom and understanding? Fear the Lord. What does that mean? It means be oriented to Him. Call out to Him. Cry out to Him continually. Just listen to all the ways that this fear of the Lord is expressed in Psalm 34. I had to make a list because it was long. The fear of the Lord is to bless Him always. It's to praise Him continually. It's to boast in Him from your heart or your soul. It is to humble yourself before Him. It's to magnify Him. It's to seek the Lord. It's to look to Him. It's to cry to Him. It's to taste and see His goodness. It's to trust in Him. 
It's to listen to His Word. It is to depart from evil and to seek peace. It is to have a broken heart and it is to serve Him. All of those things compiled together are the fear of the Lord. That's not a bad thing. That's a wonderful thing. That is to stand in awe of our God who is wonderful in the truest sense of the word. Everything he does is right. He himself is the essence of beauty and goodness and truth. He defines all those things for us. If you see that, you fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is clean. It's, it's, it's a cleansing power to the heart as we are oriented to him. So, brothers and sisters, this morning I want to ask you this question because the theme today clearly is the crying of the children, the children's cries. Do you know something? Do you personally know something of this cry? Uh, Abba, Father, to the Lord as your Father. What is it that you are hungering and thirsting for, brothers and sisters? Are you hungering and thirsting for power and money and prestige and all this world can offer you? Or are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness and find your only satisfaction in Him and in His Word alone? What is it that you hate? What what is it that makes you groan in your spirit? Do you sigh and groan over your sin and long to be free of this body of death? Can you say with the persistent widow, deliver me from my sins who are my true adversaries who constantly oppress me? When you, fear, when you um, have fear and anxiety, when it comes upon you suddenly, where do you turn? That, that's an excellent test to know if you are a child of God. Where do you turn? Do you turn inwardly to yourself? Do you turn to other people? Do you turn to psychology and self-helps of various kinds? Or is your instinct to turn to the Lord? Maybe you don't do it right away or always. But when you turn to those other things, which are sin, you recognize it and you turn back to the Lord. And that's where you find your satisfaction. That's where you find your help. That tells you that you have this new instinct. What is it that you love? What is it that you delight in that causes you to stand in wonder and amazement? Do you stand in awe of the Lord as Creator and especially as your Redeemer? Do you find comfort and delight in the Word of God? When you see Jesus Christ in the text throughout Scripture, does your heart leap for joy? Those are all signs that you are a child of God and that you are crying out to the Lord, Abba, I just want you, Daddy. That's it. I don't want other stuff. So, what the cry is? It's prayer. It's the heart of prayer. It's something we are to do and we do do all the time. It's just like saying, breathe to somebody. You do it. And you're going to do it more and more. You're going to become more aware that you're doing it as you grow in grace. Where does it come from? It comes from the heart because the Lord Himself has put it there and it's He Himself who's crying out, Abba, within you. How do you identify the true and the counterfeit? One has a genuine heart and the other one doesn't. One's concerned with the spirit of the thing and the other is concerned with the formality of the thing. And then the privilege of the cry, it comes to us at a great cost and it has a great value to us. It is the fear of the Lord which saves our souls. 
Pray without ceasing, brothers and sisters. You can't do that if you're not a child of God. But if you are, you have this instinct in you. Take heart. Practice it more and more. Practice it in private. Practice it with brothers and sisters in public. Don't be ashamed of it. It's who you are. It can be short, but it's genuine. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the truth of Your Word which encourages our spirits, which reminds us that You are God and that You have called us to Yourself that we might live with You and enjoy You. Father, all this benefit that You've given us, who are we that You should pay any attention to us, let alone give us the glory that You've given to Your own Son, a glory that is shared with Him, that we should be sons together with Him, that we should be co-heirs of eternal life and really of You who are the great inheritance. Father, what can we say but thank You? We praise You. We worship You. Help us, Lord, to just be more aware of what You've already done and are doing in our hearts that we might praise You more. For this is what brings You great glory. Lord, help us when we are in trials and we don't see the end of the tunnel and when we are in distress. Lord, help us to reorient ourselves and, and Lord, help us to help each other with this, to remind each other, to look to the Lord, to have the fear of the Lord before our eyes, to delight in you, even in the midst of trial, because we can. Thank you, Father, for your great grace to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.